trials, trials are hard. <laughs> trials are painful. Trials uh, are difficult, often end in tears or continue in tears. Trials expose us. Trials mess with us. They confuse us. Uh, trials disorient us. I don't know if you've ever just woken up sometimes in the midst of a trial and just like, I don't know where I'm at. What is going on? What is life about? Who am I in this world? Where am I going? I mean, trials surprise us. Even though we know life is full of trials, there's still times where it just hits us and we're like, what? Was this a surprise birthday party? Like, I didn't know this was coming. How did I not know this was coming? They surprise us. And as they surprise us and they expose like what's really going on in our hearts and our lives and our thinking... And they also just plain hurt. They hurt. A few weeks ago, I was sobbing in bed with my wife, Kaylin, in the midst of this enduring trial that hasn't seemed to cease for months, for actually years. And I'm just sobbing, crying, because it hurts. And I don't know what to do. I feel at the end of my rope saying things to her, they're like, I don't, I don't know what is this. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know where to go now. I've been trying and trying. What do I keep doing? It doesn't seem to let up. It's affected me in so many ways. Like, it just, it just hurt. It felt raw. You know, so raw where you're like, anything that is said or spoken just feels like it's picking at a raw sore that you can't even handle, that you're just like, ah, I can't handle this. That's how I raw I felt. Confused as well. Broken. Wondering how messed up my life could be. How is it this messed up? And my wife was so gracious and kind. I mean, she has persistently displayed wise love to me. And then now to, to zoom out a little bit from them, I can see... Um, a bit of what the Lord was doing in that. A little bit of what the Lord was doing in that, in his wisdom. And so I say that to just say, to be frank up front, and then to, to maybe ease your waters into, your toes into the waters, because James is not going to ease us into anything. James is uh, pithy, practical, and very direct. Uh, where Paul will tell you who he is and, and pray for you and encourage you, probably for a good uh, few paragraphs. And then if he's Ephesians, for three chapters, just tell you who you are in Christ, who you are in Christ, who you are in Christ. James says, greetings, boom, let's go. <laughs> and that's what's happening this morning. This morning we receive wisdom to think about our trials. This, in essence, won't be how to feel about your trials, but how to think about your trials. How do we think about our trials? James 1, verse 1. Let's get in this book together. What page was that, Allie? 1,071. I'd love for you to see it. If you need a Bible, they're underneath the, the, your chair or in front of you. You can take it with you if you don't have one. We'd love for you to have 
uh, a copy of God's word that you'd be able to, to read this. And so James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. That's it. James is succinct and direct. What is he? He's a servant of God and he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Greetings to the 12 tribes tribes dispersed abroad. Now, these dispersed tribes, what is he saying there? Well, in the Old Testament, those that were sent out or taken from their land in captivity to other lands, uh, and then they came back after captivity, and many of them re-upped uh, into to the area of Israel, the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, but many didn't. And so that was the language of those that weren't in the land of Israel were called the dispersion. And so the Jewish people that are living still in Babylon or Assyria, or other parts, foreign nations around them, their dispersion. And so James picks up this language, and what he's saying is to those Christians, those disciples of the Lord who are spread abroad. And so what he's calling Christians now is the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's, a, it's very succinct because Paul, if you know, in Galatians, makes a very big case of that who are actually the children of Israel, the people that were born from descendants of Abram or those who have put their faith in Jesus. And he says, it's the people who have put their faith in Jesus. And James is just succinctly saying, all of you who put your faith in Jesus, who are spread abroad, you are the people of God. You are the 12 tribes of Jesus. You are the Lord's disciples spread abroad. Spread abroad. And so he's going to speak to his brothers and sisters. You'll see this in this little passage and then throughout the book that he speaks uh, very often of my brothers, my sisters. My brothers, my sisters. These people who presently feel the weight of life's pressures and temptations of the world to conform to the, the pagan culture and environment around them. So this is who these people are. It gives us a little insight into this audience and to understand this book. But who is the author? James. Could it be James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the disciples of Jesus? Um, no. No, I can make a long argument for this, but many contend, most scholars and theologians contend that this is James, the younger half-brother of Jesus, who becomes the pillar of the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts. If you remember the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, you see James. When you see Paul talking about his life and going to Jerusalem, he talks about James. Why so James is the pillar. Like when he makes his opinion known about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, he's such a pillar that they say, yes, we agree with you, James. So James is the half-brother of Jesus, different fathers, right? Now this is amazing to think about because in Mark 3, Jesus' family Here's about Jesus healing demons, gathering from 12 disciples. Know that that's like connected to 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, he starts gathering people into a house. And do you know what, what the family does? They try to restrain him. The family of Jesus. Because of what he's doing in his ministry, they're like, we need to grab this guy, bring him back to our house, and hide him from everyone. Because why? He's a madman. That's their view of Jesus in his ministry, which includes James. James thinks 
his brother is a lunatic for saying these things, for doing these things. And so he's like, I'm going to go and we're going to grab him and pull him back into our house, take him back to home and to keep his mouth shut so he doesn't keep saying these bizarre, wild hallucinations they must be. Now what does James say? He doesn't even say, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. Because you know what's more important? I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. His authority is not in his relational dynamics with his half-brother. His authority in writing this letter comes from, he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus, Paul tells us. That he's seen. So, So what's changed from James calling his brother, a lunatic, to now calling him Lord, well, it's the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection changes everything. He's able to turn his mind to saying, man, this guy is crazy. My older brother is bananas to know my older brother is the risen king, son of God, Lord over everything, and I'm his servant. This changes everything for him. And so if you're here this morning wrestling with some doubts, just Write in your gut what you have to at the essence of everything. You've got probably tons of questions about creation and life and dinosaurs and Noah's Ark and whatever, right? At the heart of everything, what you must wrestle with, that will cascade into everything else is the resurrection of Jesus. If he rose from the grave, everything is different. It may sound loony, everything that Jesus said and did. The Bible may sound bizarre, contradictory, full of problems, something very old and religious and and should be kind of shaped and changed and edited to get with the times. But if the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus is true, it changes everything. This is fully true, authoritative, in the word of God. What you've got to wrestle with this morning is the resurrection of Jesus like James. That's how you clearly see who Jesus is. Just like his brother. And so he's saying, I'm servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I personally have an older brother who's really a half-brother, different moms. Um, I've never thought he was a madman. Like, I know some of his problems. I know know a lot of his problems. But I've not thought he's crazy. But I've also never thought he was the Lord. Like, I've never worshipped him. I never like, hey, Family, we're going to drive out to, to Perrin to my brother's house, and we're going to uh, hang out with him. He's probably going to grill some steaks. And at some point, we're all going to get on our knees and worship Chris. I never said that. Maybe I have in a joke, honestly, but, uh, but it's never happened. It's never happened. Why? He hasn't died, and he hasn't rose from the grave. I really like my brother, but God did not raise him from the dead. What changes James' relationship with his half-brother is the resurrection. And so he's saying, hey, this is who I am. And this is where my wisdom comes from. Now, if you know James, the book of James, what you'll see is that 
What he writes about, the topics and how he writes, is very similar to his brother's Sermon on the Mount. Also very similar to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. And so what you get here is not a strong theological treatise like Paul's Romans. What you get here is wisdom for everyday life. What you get here is essentially a sage, a wise sage who's going to give you practical wisdom on how to live your life. And who else can tell us than the one who grew up with Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, and also who confesses Jesus as the wisdom of God and the Lord, the Son of God. Wisdom is the skill of practical living. Sometimes we think about wise people. I'm trying to think like a Red Bull commercial, right? You have to, you have to climb up the mountain to get to the wise sage. And what are they doing? Like living by themselves? That's just not wisdom. Having all the answers by yourself on a mountain is not wisdom. Because wisdom is all about practical skill for daily life. For real life. For real life. It's to live well. It's to choose the best goals and to choose the best way to get those goals. That's wisdom. Often, we want to know why, but what James is going to do is tell us how. How to live. How to live in this world. You know, when you're driving around, uh, uh, the, the signs and directions caution signs, the stoplights, they tell you how to drive. They don't tell you why to drive. They don't say caution or yield. And like, why? Just do it. Just do it. I'm a little sign. I don't have enough time to give you all the whys. You should have maybe did that like when you're 16 and, and learning how to drive, like you should have learned all the whys there. Here, I'm here for just how. How do you do this? It's yellow. Slow down. It's red. Stop. And that's what James is. He's not going to get an all the whys because this is, this is wisdom literature that's going to tell you how to live in your everyday life. So with that said, he's pithy, he's practical, he's very direct. Verse 2. Greetings. Okay? He said hi. Verse 1. Verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Hi, you will experience various trials. I say it that way because he doesn't say if, he says whenever. First sentence, you are going to experience various trials. A litany of different trials is what the word various means. So poverty, injustice, conflict, persecution, sickness, grief. You are going to experience this in this Life, James is direct, not if, but when. 
a Christian's life will include various trials in this fallen world where sin is rampant and the devil is on a rampage. You will. Now, there's a blasphemous theology out there that tells you this is not true, which is so weird because it's explicitly stated in verse 2. But it says that if you're going to be a Christian, everything's going to be good, great for you, wealth for you, health for you. And James says, let me, let me tell you how to think about your trials because they're going to happen. <laughs> they're going to happen. You're going to experience them in this life. And that's wisdom. That's wisdom. To be realistic about this life and not put on a superficial happiness, ignoring reality, that's wisdom. So we know we will experience various trials. Many of us are in some right now, like you're feeling it. You knew this was going to happen. You knew we were going to talk about James 1 through, uh, 1, 1 through 4, and you're like, yes, that's me right now. We also know that trials test our faith. That's what he says. We know this. In the trials of our life, our Christian faith is being tested for genuineness. I mean, that trial a few weeks ago was exposing my heart. It's exposing what I believe. Exposing what I truly think and functionally operate in. Like, is my faith in Jesus or is it in the gifts that he gives? Is my faith in Jesus or is it in my parents' faith? Is my faith in Jesus or is this something I grew up with and is really just culturally conditioned upon me? Trials test if we believe what we say we believe. And not only do they do that, they also mock our belief. I mean, the cruelty of life denies God's fatherliness. His silence in the midst of suffering questions in our mind, is he truly almighty? The haphazard, meaningless jumble of problematic events and circumstances in our lives makes us question, is there really a creator who has an ordering hand This is how life's trials test our faith. I, I met a brother this week who was telling me that his past few years have been terrible for him, where he started just drinking, making terrible decisions because he had lost his brother. His brother had died, and it's just been pulling at him and messing with him of like, what do I genuinely believe? What is this life truly about? What, I mean, he said this explicitly, what is even my purpose then? What is it? And I felt that with him. I felt that with him. I mean, through different trials of suffering and depression, my faith has been tested. You know, James says, 
trials will test your faith. You know you're going to experience trials, and you know that they're going to test your faith. I mean, I, I just wrestled with doubts about everything. Everything. Wake up at 2 in the morning. I have a decent apologetics background, so I'd wake up at 2 in the morning and be like, I don't believe anything. And they'd be like, okay, what helps me typically in the past is the apologetic line of thinking that is there a better story out there? And then I start talking about it to myself in the middle of the night, and I'm like undercutting my own apologetics. And so like I'm playing, I'm playing Christian and atheist at the same time, and I'm fighting back and forth inside my mind. And at some point, I'm just like, I want to sleep. I just want to sleep. Like, what's going on? And then you start doubting one thing, and you start pulling at it, and it feels like the whole sweater is unraveling. Where you wake up naked in unbelief of like, I guess there's nothing. Maybe I'm a nihilist now. Everything is meaningless. It's at that time that I begin to have some dreams. And I had six dreams. It was probably over the course of eight nights. And they were vivid and dark. And at first, I thought it was spiritual warfare because I've experienced some demonic dreams in the past. And I was like, this feels terrible because it was vivid, explicit dreams of my wife committing on adultery with other people. And I was just like, this is terrible. So much I'd wake up in the morning thinking, I, I, I'm done with this. Like, I can't be in this relationship because it felt so real in the dream and also felt so real in the evening. Six, the sixth one was when we were in Colorado and I woke up at 2 a.m. and I was like, feeling it, just feeling it so heavy that like, this is what she's done. This is what she's done to me. Like this, our, our relationship is over. Um, it's gone. So much so I felt it. Like I sat there and was like, I've got to wake her up and ask her if this is true. Because I thought it was so true. It felt so true. And then as I sat there, God gently whispered to me that, that this is what it's like for you to walk away from me. Like the pain, the heartache, the sense of betrayal that I felt from Caitlin from these dreams is what the Father is feeling as I'm running to these doubts and pulling on them and letting them lead to one, to another, to another, to another letting my trials unravel my faith. And in the moment, I thought, that would be cool if that was God speaking to me. I woke up in the morning. I think I tell Kaylin again that I've, I've had another dream. We're sitting there, and she tells me, what if this is God speaking to you? about what you were doing to him. And I was like, mm, I've heard that before five hours ago. And she said, I've, I've thought about this for the past few days. I almost told you two or three days ago while we were driving, but I didn't. Just thought the Lord wanted me to wait for you to hear this from him, and then I would, I would tell you. But, she, but I hadn't told her yet <laughs> that God had spoke to me, and I didn't even tell her then. That afternoon, I was like, Hey, babe, I had this thought in the night. She's like, you did? That's what I told you this morning. It was just very confirmation. The reality 
that I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, like James. Because what other God is there that would come to you in the midst of your doubt and your running away from him and speak to you in such clear ways to lovingly pull you back into his arms? There's not one. There's not one that would graciously give dreams to pursue you that would use your wife in such meaningful ways to pull you into the truth, into his love. So I can't admit that it wasn't a difficult time. Trials are a difficult time. But we know the testing of our faith produces, do you see it in verse 2 and 3? Endurance. Endurance. Keep enduring it. Keep enduring it. Keep enduring it. Clinging to your faith in Jesus leads to maturity and wholeness. Lacking nothing. I mean, we you can think about this. This isn't this isn't this is just observable. Like in many marriages, you know what you start off with? Like, I'm going to be faithful to you, I'm committed to you, I'm going to love you to the end. Those are all tentative beliefs and confessions, honestly. A bit grandiose, often hyperbolic. You don't actually get into that until you get into marriage, into the real relationship, and you work through the conflict and the fight and and the temptations for other things, and you grow together, enduring together, and you grow as a a couple together. And then you can see, oh, yes, we've, we've shown strong constancy in our life through this endurance. And so the things that you promised to became realities over this long uh, constancy, this consistent enduring in the face of trials and hardship and, and tribulations. What I'm saying is the testing of our faith produces endurance just like that. We endure. That's, this is not passive submission to our circumstances. This is active steadfastness in our circumstances that we are going to cling to Jesus, even in the midst of our trials, that we're going to endure in our belief in him, even in the midst of these trials, even in the midst of these doubts. And that's what leads us to our maturity, to our wholeness. The wisdom here is that God uses our trials to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. So what James is wisely tells him, he's saying, receive this wisdom. Don't be surprised by trials. And then also think about them this way. God is using them to shape you more and more like him. I saw, I saw, I saw a meme this week. That's why I sighed because I didn't plan on saying it, but I'm going to tell you this. And it's a meme. It's a picture of a, a girl and her father on a roller coaster. And the girl's like this. And the dad's like, like that. Right? Okay? So can you see the meme? Girl's excited, loving it. Dad is like terrified. And speaking about the girl, it says, the Puritans when facing trials. Like they're ready, right? Because they know. 
They believe this is what God's going to do. He's going to use this for me. So this is how I think about my trials. And the, the father, modern evangelicals, and any sense of discomfort. Just, <laughs> I hate this. This is terrible. What an inconvenience. This is the worst thing. And the Puritans are like, it is well with my soul after I've lost to death many of my children. That's a huge difference in how we view, how we think about our trials. So much so that we get to the point that James tells us we are to consider it all joy when you experience these various trials. Why? Not because we're sadistic or masochistic that we think, hey, there's a lot of joy in pain. He's not telling you, try to feel happy in your pain. Enjoy pain. Find pleasure in pain. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, think about this. This is the Lord's goal in these trials to make you more like his son. So I'm not going to stiff arm these trials. I'm not going to run away from them. I'm not going to allow them to discredit everything I believe about him. I'm actually going to embrace them, pull them in, and actually make them serve the purposes they're meant there to serve is to form me more into the likeness of Christ. That's what they're there for. In our trials, we believe God is our tender father. In our trials, we believe he is almighty. We believe he is the God of order. We believe he is both loving and good. We believe Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah. We cling to him as the hero of the story. This is what it means to endure. To endure. To endure in that belief and worship. And that endurance, James clearly describes, leads to maturity. So if that is God's goal for us, to use trials to refine us like fire refines gold, then we are to consider it all joy. Not put on a fake happiness and say everything is okay. But no. What God is doing in these trials, so we consider it a great joy that he is working in us. Do you know what Hebrews says about the Father's discipline? That it doesn't feel pleasant in the moment, but we know that it's for our good? That's what's happening here. James is directly telling us, think wisely about what God's goal is. Thomas Watson said, this is a Puritan. He said, God's rod is a pencil to draw Christ's image more lively upon us. So instead of stiff-arming the trials, we actually see them as what God is intending to do with them. 
So we count it a joy. And this wisdom is not merely the wisdom of James. This is clearly the wisdom of God. James being uh, influenced, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says it here, but also the Holy Spirit says it in 1 Peter 1.6. He says, to a church who is experiencing intense suffering and persecution. This is the first chapter. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So that. So both times when we talk about various trials, in James, Romans 5, and in 1 Peter 1, the text makes it clear of the why. Various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. So trials are actually to grow your faith. like a muscle in your body that needs to be worked out, that needs some uh, uh, restraint. Faith is that muscle that needs some pushback, that needs some trials and that gives it some restrictions so that you push and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, that it only grows when trials push back on it and you endure through it. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So I'm not going to lie to you, and James is not going to lie to you. Trials are grievous and painful. Peter's clear as well. Grievous and painful. We're not being told here, again, to take pleasure in pain, but we should see the purpose of trials, to rejoice in God's goal of refining you through this. This is how you're to think about trials. Now, let me, let me throw a little side note in there, because I know some of you, and how we can apply this. This isn't the best immediate response to someone who is suffering. Can you get on board with this? Those that have suffered are nodding their head heavily. Looks like they were headbanging, actually. Because they felt this, they've heard this. The cold words of just a verse ripped out of context, not connected to any other suffering. Is it, oh, you miscarried, count it a joy. Like, what is this? What is this? That we think we were just throw platitudes so that we can cover the discomfort so that we don't have to be uncomfortable. Do you see Jesus' half-brother? What does he say? You clearly think about Mary and Martha. He comes to see them. Their brother has died. He knows God has a goal in it, but what does he do? He doesn't say, hey, God's got a purpose in this. It'll be okay. He weeps with them. 
He cries with them. He listens to them. And then he does get to the point where he does say, this is for the purpose of glorifying the Father. So this is how you, th you should think about Charles. This is how we should all think about Charles. But we're in the midst of it. When someone's in the midst of it, come alongside them. Be present with them. Weep with them. Don't try to just quickly course correct how they're thinking about trials when they're in the midst of them. Be present and cry with them. But there will be a time to wisely communicate. I want you to see this. And I don't want you to waste this suffering. I don't want you to waste this trial. That actually this trial is for God to use in you, to grow you, to form you more into the image of Jesus. That's how we should think about this. Jesus didn't say, hey, ladies, consider your, your brother's death a joy. There's a purpose. So I want us to hear the wisdom here, but then also to hear the, the priestly presence of Jesus, what it looks like to enter into those, the lives of those that are suffering. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Now let me, let me finish with one thing. All of this is contingent upon the second phrase in verse 2. All of this. All of this wisdom is for those who are what James says, my brothers and sisters. Because what what the text is clearly communicating is that God uses trials in his children's lives to conform them more into his eternal son, Jesus, to make all of his children more like his son. But if you're not a son or a daughter, if you're not a brother or sister with us, we can't give you that promise. We can't let you sit in that as like good news. That's good news for me. I can, I can think about my, my, my trial this week and endure it because I know that uh, I'll, I'll kind of take some of this Christian language and just make it a more ambiguous language and just say everything has a purpose. So I'll be okay. Everything has a purpose. Not God has a purpose, just everything has a purpose. If you want to actually know wisdom, if you want your life and everything to change in it. It begins where it began with James. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a lunatic or is he the Lord? Was he a decent teacher, another religious figure, or is he the eternal son of the Father, sent by the Father out of love, to die in our place for our sins, to show us wisdom personified, to live the good life and then to die in our place and to rise from the grave to justify us, to make us one with him and right with the Father. Because that's clearly what the Bible reports. And so I don't want you to get 
thinking just about trials in your life. I want you to think actually this, that trials are exposing in you that you need someone beyond yourself. And as you look at the resurrection of Jesus, you see he's the one, maybe not that you hope for, but you desperately need. So I invite you not to, to exercise your faith so that it'll grow, but actually put your faith now for the first time in Jesus and confess to him that he's the Lord, he's your Savior. That's the beginning of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this moment. And I ask that we just be present in this moment with so many things around us, so many things to consider and think and do and list and issues and relationships. Lord, that we may be present with you here now hearing from you and speaking to you. Knowing and believing that you are present with us. And Lord, may you correct our thinking, particularly in how you view trials. Lord, help us. And for those that are suffering, I pray that that right now, this morning, they would make that known to a brother or sister, and that brother and sister to come alongside and sit with them and hold them and listen to them. Would be very slow to speak and quick to listen gentle and gracious as you are with us and pray for that brother, that sister. In the midst of our trials, we are disoriented and confused, but Lord, we believe you are who you say you are. We understand our trajectory feels like a ship in the midst of a storm at the end we know where we're heading to be with you to know you fully and to enjoy you forever would you show us that would you pour your love into our hearts through your spirit right now in Christ's name we pray Amen.